Chapter Eighteen of Tales of a Traveler by Washington Irving. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Greg Giordano. Buckthorn, Part Six. I was thus carrying everything before me. I was the Adonis of the cathedral circle when one evening there was a public ball which was attended likewise by the gentry of the neighborhood i took great pains with my toilet on the occasion and i had never looked better i had determined that night to make my grand assault on the heart of the young lady to batter it with all my forces and the next morning to demand a surrender in due form i entered the ballroom amidst a buzz and flutter which generally took place among the young ladies on my appearance i was in fine spirits for to tell the truth i had exhilarated myself by a cheerful glass of wine on the occasion i talked and rattled and said a thousand silly things slapdash with all the confidence of a man sure of his auditors and everything had its effect in the midst of my triumph i observed a little knot gathering together in the upper part of the room by degrees it increased a tittering broke out there and glances were cast round at me and then there would be fresh tittering some of the young ladies would hurry away to distant parts of the room and whisper to their friends wherever they went there was still this tittering and glancing at me i did not know what to make of all this i looked at myself from head to toe and peeped at my back in a glass to see if anything was odd about my person any awkward exposure any whimsical tag hanging out no everything was right i was a perfect picture i determined that it must be some choice saying of mine that was handled about in this knot of merry beauties and i determined to enjoy one of my good things in the rebound i stepped gently therefore up the room smiling at every one as i passed who i must say all smiled and tittered in return I approached the group, smirking and perking my chin, like a man who is full of pleasant feeling, and sure of being well received. The cluster of little bells opened as I advanced. Heavens and earth! Whom shall I perceive in the midst of them but my early and tormenting flame, the everlasting Saccharissa? She was grown up, it is true, into the full beauty of womanhood but showed by the provoking merriment of her countenance that she perfectly recollected me and the ridiculous flagellations of which she had twice been the cause i saw at once the exterminating cloud of ridicule that was bursting over me my crest fell the flame of love went suddenly out in my bosom or was extinguished by overwhelming shame how i got down the room i know not I fancied every one tittering at me. Just as I reached the door, I caught a glance of my mistress and her aunt, listening to the whispers of my poetic rival, the old lady raising her hands and eyes, and the face of the young one lighted up with scorn ineffable. I paused to see no more, but made two steps from the top of the stairs to the bottom. The next morning, before sunrise, I beat a retreat, and did not feel the blushes cool from my tingling cheeks until i had lost sight of the old towers of the cathedral i now returned to town thoughtful and crestfallen my money was nearly spent 
for i lived freely and without calculation the dream of love was over and the reign of pleasure at an end i determined to retrench while i had yet a trifle left so selling my equipage and horses for half their value i quietly put the money in my pocket and turned pedestrian i had not a doubt that with my great expectations i could at any time raise funds either on usury or by borrowing but i was principled against both one and the other and resolved by strict economy to make my slender purse hold out till my uncle should give up the ghost or rather the estate i stayed at home therefore and read and would have written but i had already suffered too much from my poetical productions which had generally involved me in some ridiculous scrape i gradually acquired a rusty look and had a straitened money-borrowing air upon which the world began to shy me i have never felt disposed to quarrel with the world for its conduct it has always used me well when i have been flush and gay and disposed for society it has caressed me and when i have been pinched and reduced and wished to be alone why it has left me alone and what more could a man desire take my word for it this world is a more obliging world than people generally represent it well sir in the midst of my retrenchment my retirement and my studiousness i received news that my uncle was dangerously ill i hastened on the wings of an heir's affection to receive his dying breath and his last testament i found him attended by his faithful valet old iron john by the woman who occasionally worked about the house and by the foxy-headed boy young orson who might occasionally hunted about the park iron john gasped a kind of asthmatical salutation as i entered the room and received me with something almost like a smile of welcome the woman sat blubbering at the foot of the bed and the foxy-headed orson who had now grown to be a lubberly lout stood gazing in stupid vacancy at a distance my uncle lay stretched upon his back the chamber was without a fire or any of the comforts of a sick room the cobwebs flaunted from the ceiling the tester was covered with dust and the curtains were tattered from underneath the bed peeped out one end of his strong box against the waistcoat were suspended rusty blunderbusses horse pistols and a cut-and-thrust sword with which he had fortified his room to defend his life and treasure he had employed no physician during his illness and from the scanty relics lying on the table seemed almost to have denied himself the assistance of a cook when i entered the room he was lying motionless with his eyes fixed and his mouth open at the first look i thought him a corpse the noise of my entrance made him turn his head at the sight of me a ghastly smile came over his face and his glazing eye gleamed with satisfaction it was the only smile he had ever given me and it went to my heart poor old man thought i why would you not let me love you why would you force me to leave you thus desolate when i see that my presence has the power to cheer you nephew said he after several efforts and in a low gasping voice i am glad you are come i shall now die with satisfaction look said he raising his withered hand and pointing look in that box on the table you will find that i have not forgotten you i pressed his hand to my heart and the tears stood in my eyes 
I sat down by his bedside and watched him, but he never spoke again. My presence, however, gave him evident satisfaction, for every now and then, as he looked at me, a vague smile would come over his visage, and he would feebly point to the sealed box on the table. As the day wore away, his life seemed to wear away with it. Toward sunset, his hand sunk on the bed and lay motionless. His eyes grew glazed, his mouth remained open, and thus he gradually died. I could not but feel shocked at this absolute extinction of my kindred. I dropped a tear of real sorrow over this strange old man, who had thus reserved his smile of kindness to his deathbed, like an evening sun after a gloomy day, just shining out to set in darkness, leaving the corpse in charge of the domestics. I retired for the night. It was a rough night. The winds seemed as if singing my uncle's requiem about the mansion, and the bloodhounds howled without as if they knew of the death of their old master. Iron John almost grudged me the tallow candle to burn in my apartment and light up its dreariness. So accustomed had he been to starveling economy. I could not sleep. The recollection of my uncle's dying scene and the dreary sounds about the house affected my mind. These, however, were succeeded by plans for the future, and I lay awake the greater part of the night, indulging the poetical anticipation how soon I would make these old walls ring with cheerful life and restore the hospitality of my mother's ancestors. My uncle's funeral was decent but private. I knew there was nobody that respected his memory, and I was determined that none should be summoned to sneer over his funeral wines and make merry at his grave. He was buried in the church of the neighboring village, though it was not the burying place of his race, but he had expressly enjoined that he should not be buried with his family. He had quarreled with the most of them when living, and he carried his resentments even into the grave. I defrayed the expenses of the funeral out of my own purse, that I might have done with the undertakers at once, and clear the ill-omened birds from the premises. I invited the parson of the parish and the lawyer from the village to attend at the house the next morning, and hear the reading of the will. I treated them to an excellent breakfast, a profusion that had not been seen at the house for many a year. As soon as the breakfast things were removed, I summoned Iron John, the woman, and the boy, for I was particular of having everyone present and proceeding regularly. The box was placed on the table. All was silence. I broke the seal, raised the lid, and beheld, not the will, but my accursed poem of Doubting Castle and Giant Despair. End of chapter 18 Recording by Greg Giordano Newport Ritchie, Florida